we don't understand why we're losing the battle. I, you know, I hate to use the term battle, but, you know, why we're losing, you know? Because we don't know what the good news is. We don't live the good news. And the world is, is not hearing or seeing good news. If we don't know what it is, how are they supposed to hear it? Why the gospel doesn't sound like good news today on In the Shadow of the Cross. here once again with my friends Jim Durkin. Good morning. And Michael Harden. Hello. So we were discussing the topic that we're going to have today and I was immediately brought back to a time when my wife and I took a trip to San Antonio, Texas and uh, to the Riverwalk and we were walking through the downtown area and a big crowd of people who were all touristing and uh, there were some people on the corner with a loudspeaker out there preaching the gospel, you know, and uh, I hold no judgment against them because I've done this too. And, but as they were preaching the gospel, it was interesting. We could hear in the crowd murmurings among, particularly amongst the younger people who were maybe like in their twenties, overheard a couple people saying, this is terrible. These people say that my friend who is gay is going to hell. And uh, someone came over to hand, hand this person a track, and she immediately lashed out and said, no, I don't want that. You, you say my friends are going to hell. And uh, so we were talking about, well, what makes the gospel good news? If, if people are immediately perceiving something, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out if something's good news or not. If I come home to my wife and I say, Lily, I've got good news for you. The car engine blew up today, and we don't have a car right now. Isn't that great news? It's obvious. It, it, everybody with half a, with one functioning brain cell listening to this would go, that is not good news at all. You know, on the other hand, if I come home and I say, Lily, guess what? I just got a massive raise and we're getting a new car. That's obviously good news. So it, it, for the gospel to be good news, it has to actually be good news. And um, to, to put it the way Darren Hufford said that the message that has so often been carried in evangelical Christianity has basically gone like this. If you were to just summarize it into a small perspective, it was basically a man's in love with a woman. He goes up to the woman and says, I really love you. Will you marry me? And she's like, well, you know, I, I find you very interesting. Let me think about it. He goes, well, I just want you to know if you don't marry me, I'm going to pour gasoline on you and light you on fire. So that kind of summarizes the message that has been put out there as far as the gospel. We 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 make the good news is the bad thing I was going to do to you, I'm not doing to you. That's kind of more of a threat to me than good news. So so what do you guys think? Um, what makes the gospel good news? Jimbo? <laughs> um, you put a lot out there in just a few minutes there, Lauren. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm still hung up on the uh, engine that blew up and <laughs> <laughs> although uh, it could be good news if the engine that blew up was in an old car 
and uh, your raise was enough to get a brand new car, especially a hybrid. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Go green, baby. Yeah, go green. And then, and then, and then it's good news. (laughs) But uh, you know, I I agree with you. It's uh, it's interesting how we uh, take a a message and um, spin it. Um, We we've come up with. a th- theory or a, a woven message uh, we when we were discussing this earlier uh, that has been added to over the centuries uh, since Jesus walked the earth and uh, the additions uh, have not helped us out let's put it that way it's not got us closer to truly good news we spoke in in weeks past about jesus the peacemaker and it's interesting that even in that i think i i i put something on uh, facebook about jesus the peacemaker and i don't know how many people immediately come back with jesus said i did not come to bring peace but but to set at variance a man against his wife. And and it's like... <laughs> I wish you guys could see the facial expressions both Jim and Michael are making right now. <laughs> is, is, that, is that really the Jesus you want? Is that the Jesus that uh, you say that you're in love with and his father, God? Uh, that, as, as Lauren says, either... In that case, either marry my son or I'll destroy you, you know. Either love me or I'll kill you. And and is that the kind of love relationship we, we want to have? So I, I think the next uh, this next hour is going to be a very interesting time as we begin to explore what true love is, what love is from the Father, what love is from Christ, um, and, and what love looks like from us as we reciprocate so i'll kick it back to you michael well let's start exactly there jim let's start with the axiom god is love the biblical axiom from first john and let's correlate that with the other axiom in first john god is light and in god there is no dark side at all now this is very important god is pure love and pure light there's no dark side to god there's no hate side to god Okay, now, what is the real problem of the modern Christian view of of religion? Think about it for a second. If you wanted to have a religion, would you place at the center and heart of that thing the story of an innocent guy being condemned and tried and convicted and killed and crucified? I mean, what 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 religion? Really? You know, the execution story of Jesus. Well, the fact is, that execution story tells us more about everything than anything else can tell us about it. It is in its heart and soul, that this story of Jesus, not simply... Uh, an anthropology, a revelation of our scapegoating tendencies, but it's also pure revelation of the Father's heart. 
And the, the purity that comes through the cross is precisely tied to love, absolute love and, and light. There's revelation happening here. And that's that God does not have a dark side. Okay? That's, that is the axiom upon which we can build our entire Christian theology. However, we early on, uh, because of the influence of the Jerusalem church and the literature that comes out of it, like the Gospel of Matthew, the book of Revelation, and Jude, James, First and Second Peter, um, we have that tradition that is still the gospel is being lived out within a Jewish second temple eschatological framework and mentality. And that's that that has a, a rather wrathful God. Okay? There has never, ever been created by human beings a God that was nonviolent and pure love. We humans, all of our gods, are two-faced, yin and yang, God and Satan. And sadly, we, we could document through church history, the cross divided, we have put back together. Hmm. And so our God, in the evangelical tradition, looks more like Satan than Jesus. Um, there's a number of historical reasons that we think that. You know, we have very bad atonement theories, the penal substitutionary atonement theory being a particularly bad version of an alcoholic parent that's a divine child abuser uh, is really what it boils down to. You know, and then we get all weepy, you know, Jesus paid the price for my sins. Yeah, well, not in the way you think. You know, and, and this has a lot more to do with just trying to feel better because you confessed your sin you felt really bad before you did it you knew you were going to do it you felt good doing it but now you regret it ah Jesus, blood covers me language the new testament never uses i mean come on come on we we live in sin management then that's not good news there's nothing good news about that man dang i I spent my whole life trying to be pure and holy and, and, and this is like, and then there's this other side of me that just comes in and, and I want to deny that reality. And, and instead of remembering the apostle, Paul had this same reality in Romans 7 and in Galatians. How did he break through it? Well, instead of exploring those important kind of questions, what Christianity's done, is it's turned the father of Jesus into just another God. Wow, there is so much there. You, you know, just, just real quick, um, a quick side note, then I want to come back. It's funny when you're talking about sin management and, you know, trying to be holy. I was in a conversation with somebody this week that was really interesting because he was talking about, he goes, you know, God is causing me to become more holy because he's helping me to learn to listen to people and think less about myself. And I just sat back and went, I have never heard anyone describe holiness that way. No, that's quite I was, I was, I was stunned. I, I thought that mm -hmm. was, that okay. was some good revelation there. Any, anyway, so the whole thing with, um, 
Yeah, man, so much because you've got penal substitutionary atonement. You've got, um, you've got God not having a dark side. And when you, Michael, when you said that there has never been a God in any religion that doesn't have a dark side, that really struck me because you're right. And, and even in Christianity and, and even um, discussing with people, unless people have really come to that revelation of that there is no darkness in Jesus, um, even Christianity has, like you said, that dual face God where, where there is this dark side. Don't, don't make him mad, you know, don't, don't get him upset or he's going to come get you. And wow, I mean, it's no wonder when it's interesting because when Jesus talked about that, being persecuted, it's the thing I find fascinating is what he was being persecuted for was showing a God who has no dark side. No. So that that really gets under people's skin because man, I mean, just just recently in, in events in the news with the the rise of violence and everything, and and man, you I just hear it all the time the people just wanting that violent God to justify holding on to their violence. So so we're we're looking at the the message of so what is the good news message? What what was you we mentioned that our our gospel starts with. And like what religion does this, as you said, with a, a an innocent man being killed. So let, let's start with this. You mentioned sin um, being forgiven, but not in the way that people think. Let's start right there, because that was a mess I had to try to untangle just this week in a social a social uh, media discussion. Um, how would you, how would you guys, um, tackle that? Yeah. Yeah. Jim, let me, let me jump in on that, uh, for a second before Michael takes it down the road, kicks the ball way down the road. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that within a relatively short period of time a, a baby comes to understand that there are things that you know, people over them, older siblings, mom, dad, aunts, uncles, whoever, says is is wrong behavior. And because it's wrong behavior, it must be punished in some way. And, you know, I, I maybe I shouldn't admit this, but when I was a young man and my uh, oldest daughter uh, was not more than six or seven months old, and... Uh, she had colic really, really bad, and and so she cried a lot. And I remember going to my dad and asking him, like, how how uh, soon can you start disciplining your child for not obeying you? And 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 not obeying me was about the issue of me telling her to stop crying. And she's six months old, and. So we ingrain this into our children, generation after generation after generation. Uh, discipline always looks different, but, but the bottom line is really the same. You transgress some law that I established, and because you transgressed, you must be disciplined or punished or whatever. And so it, it goes without saying that we would we would transfer that same concept onto god 
that uh, there must be laws, we call them universal laws or whatever, and especially if we're in evangelical Christian circles, the Bible's full of them. I mean, it's packed with laws. And if you transgress, you deserve to be punished. And who's going to be, who's going to be the punisher? Well, the one who wrote the laws. And that, that's got to, you know, going to be God. And, and, and there is an ultimate punishment. And, and so we write this script not based on anything that God himself said or Jesus said, not based on anything that the Holy Spirit desires to bring us into the truth, only based on our human proclivities and, you know, our, our, our personal bent on things that authority establishes laws and that same authority has a penal process by which they punish the transgressor of those laws. And again, we try and fit that into something we call the good news, that there's an escape clause, and we call that penal substitution or whatever. But when we look at, at Scripture, in light of the Holy Spirit illuminating that, we see that there's none of that in Scripture. It, it isn't, I sin, he forgives, I sin, he forgives, I sin, he forgives, and God help me that I get the forgiveness before I die, because if I didn't get the forgiveness, it's like slippery slope, uh, you know? And, and it's like, I'm just going to throw it out there, and then I'll let Michael pick it up. What if this God who so loved me, what if he actually removed the law altogether? You, you set the stage very well for Michael. <laughs> that was a slow ball coming at me. Here it comes. <laughs> yeah, so fundamentally, this message of this crucified Christ um, is good news, because what it does is it redefines for us many things. So the first thing, Lauren, we, we've used the word sin. We, we need to define that. We don't, what do we mean by sin? Now, Absolutely. Of course, since you know time immemorial, uh, we've learned to distinguish between uh, we have uh, moral principles and values, and, and we've learned through philosophy what's the good, the beautiful, the true, the just, the right, you know, and and we've created all sorts of things called natural law, you know, and what we think is natural law, and on and on and on and on and on. Okay. Now, humans' society that is sacrificial in nature expresses its sin socially. It is, our, it is the way we treat one another. It is our, inter our interactions, our engagements with one another that can or, or cannot be sinful. This has nothing to do with so-called personal or private sin. That's absurd. Everybody has their challenges. Sin manifests socially in relationships. That's where sin is. Sin only exists in relationships, and it only exists as 
is that which fractures and destroys. So, what am I forgiven? When I, when I come to the cross, I'm forgiven the way I treat people. I'm forgiven the way I treated Jesus. Um, and, and being forgiven, I also now have the anthropological awareness that in relation to others, I will forgive them. Now we actually have a theological concept, the cross, becoming a transformative relational reality. You see that? You can go from so-called good atonement theory straight on into not ethics, what's better than ethics. It's the actual work of the Spirit transforming human relationships. This is, this is powerful because the first thing that jumped out at me is what you're describing and, Jim, what you, you led into is that this gospel then is not about, like you said, some, some personal piety, some personal individual me and Jesus thing or, or um, some uh, mystical or after, afterlife experience assurance. It, even though we're, we're going to get to the resurrection in a little bit, that, that's there. Um, I'm not ripping that out, but but what I am saying though is that the gospel then actually has a a visual um, appearance in this world. If, in other words, if the gospel is in my life, it's going to affect my interactions with people. So the gospel actually is something that's visible. It's it's not something that's that's just I asked Jesus into my heart, he's in my heart now, now I'm going to heaven. It's it's something that the the actual gospel means it impacts my relationships with other human beings. And but but okay, now people who would say it's about going to heaven, they they would say, Well, yeah, 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 yeah. But but what I've noticed is they make that secondary. You know, it, the, the primary thing is me getting my insurance, and then because I'm following the laws, the rules, I'm supposed to be nice to people. So it's it's more of a rule kind of thing. But but what you're talking about Michael is that the gospel is God forgiving me for my hostility towards my towards my neighbor and towards him. So it's totally on a relational basis, which means that if you know, he'll continue to he'll forgive me all the time. I don't I'm not saying this it's instant transformation where suddenly I'm like I'm wonderful to everybody now. But as he's working in my life, that means I'm receiving that forgiveness. He, I do it one day. I treat Jim bad. One day I treat Jim bad. The next day I treat Jim bad. The next day God forgives me. God forgives. But eventually, that transformation is going to work in my heart. Where now I'm going to stop treating Jim badly. <laughs> so it's like there would be a physical. I'd, I'd like to know when that's going to begin, Lauren. <laughs> oh, he always wants to talk eschatology. <laughs> So, well, uh, 70 times 7, brother. Uh, <laughs> I got it. But, but no, so it's, it's like, I guess the thing that, that irks me in, the, um, in the, the, the evangelical gospel that I grew up with is it doesn't have a here and now reality to it. it there's, there's like a, um, it, it's just all about, it's basically Gnostic because it's all about what happens after it's it's all about getting my assurance, but but 
I hate that the gospel is so missing the element of it should be in, it, it's impacting our world now. It's impacting the people around me now. And, and Michael, what you were saying is that the gospel is directly impacting our relationships with one another by forgiving us for the way we treated one another. And, and so it's something that we, if somebody says they're living the gospel, we should actually see something in this world here and now, not, not some sweet by and by experience. So what are your thoughts? Well, why do you think Christians uh, uh, of all types, especially in the last 50 years, have slipped the moors and gone into charismania. They want experience of the divine. That's what they want. They want to feel it. They want to touch it. They, they need to know it's real because the world feels unreal to them. Life feels unreal. But God feels real. They're looking for that feeling, okay? That's as false as escaping into intellectualism. Well, I'm going to prove that God exists. And I've got, and here's all my rational arguments and everything else. And because I can prove it, I'll believe it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and, um, those, both those, aren't near as absurd as the escape into holiness cults, where rigid requirements can be life or death matters. Salvation matters, you know, big salvation, like the Amish. You know, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, it's astonishing. So these are all false starts. These are all Christianity. That's religion. That's religion. The gospel that the spirit empowers is always going to, always going to manifest as love and light. What does light do? It reveals, yes. right? Yeah. Right. It reveals. Now, when we are engaged as these light lovers, I like that, light lovers, here we are, <laughs> we're, 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 we're engaging others this way, we need to know two things. One, the world isn't going to understand us. And two, they won't be able to overcome us with their hate. And that's just simply John 1, 5 with the two different, with the play on words there, uh, the, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness shall not overcome it, either intellectually or militarily. I think also what we're talking about there is to become people who are transformed by love. And it it takes a it, it's a process it doesn't happen overnight but but as we're being transformed by love there's there's a couple of things that one the lord says that this is how the whole world's going to know that you're my disciples not by charismania I, you know i make i make no apologies for it i'm a charismatic i i love big conferences i love worship services you know, but if we don't take it out of the building, I mean, I was just at a, I was just at a, uh, a gathering of, of young Jesus people last weekend, and I had a great time. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. Uh, I'd love to but, do something like that someday. But That'd my address to them had to do with the 50-year-long 
relationships that I have with hundreds of people around the country. And we have grown in not only in our relationship, which began in the Jesus People movement, but it's, it's grown over the years until we are a family. And, and my challenge to these young people is don't just go from this mountaintop experience to a mountaintop experience, and then you go to the, you know, to the hellhole called life in between, looking for the next big charismatic happening. But instead, build relationships and build relationships that are, that are based on God's interpretation of love, not humanism. I mean, we can, we can do all this, uh, uh, you know, social justice, humanistic love stuff, and that doesn't prove anything. It only proves that we're, we're human, you know, or whatever. It doesn't prove that we're God's disciples. So it has to be love God's way. And, and that's, sometimes that's sacrificial. To love a person, to forgive, you know, 70 times 7, you know, to, to constantly keep coming back and to manifest love when they're spitting in your face, you know. Um, and, and, and so I think we can have both. I think... We can be the student who digs into the nuances of, of the, the original languages and the writings of the early church fathers. We can be a charismatic. But again, and I appreciate what you're saying, Michael, neither of those are true and undefiled religion. The, other, the final thing that I wanted to say on that note is I love what... I believe it's First John says, and, and I seldom have ever heard a message preached on this, if you say, I love God, but do not love your brother, you're a liar. Yeah. And, and so much of Christian circles, the whole thing is get your love of God down. You know, just get your love of God down. And, and you're sitting in a, in a building with 20, 50, 100, 3,000 other people and you don't even know any of them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and you're not sure. As a matter of fact, you've got everybody in that room pegged. Oh, that's Mrs. So-and-so. She's this. Oh, that's so-and-so. His kids are a wreck. Oh, that's so, you know. And you've got all these people judged and your excuses as why you wouldn't possibly like them or hang out with them, but you, quote, do church with them, and you call them your brother or sister. As a matter of fact, you don't know their name, so you just call them brother. That's terrible. And this is somehow manifesting to the world because they see you with your big Bible under your arm as you walk into this building called church. And... It's like somehow this whole thing is is really upside down and and squirrely if you looked at it on the surface of things, and we don't understand why we're losing the battle. Uh, yeah, I hate to use the term battle, but you know why we're losing. You know, 
no. because we don't know what the good news is. We don't live the good news, and the world is is not hearing or seeing good news. If we don't know what it is, how are they supposed to hear it? Yeah, man, that is really good, Jim. So it's interesting because I like how you said that we're taught all the time, get the love of God down. You know, make sure you love, love the Lord your God first, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So it's like, I got to get this love of God thing down. But I, I like how you talked about, but, you know, but I don't even know my neighbor next to me. Every day we have the opportunity to, quote, get a, our love of God down just by in how I treat the people around me and how I put them first or, you know, um, uh, love my neighbor as I love myself. Um, just in line with what you said, Jim, on First John, that's getting the love of God down is loving my neighbor. And, and but in light of that, lest it turn into some kind of another, you know, we're putting another law on people, that can only be done when I know I'm forgiven. When I know I'm forgiven from the way that I treat people, that I'm able to receive the love of God to love another. And that's where it's seen. It's seen. It's the fruit that that I have been forgiven. And so now I am growing in the place where I can enter relationships with no illusions that you're going to hurt me or maybe probably not on purpose. Um, but you know, it's kind of like the thing we talked about with peace, knowing that when you, when you choose the path of peace, have no illusions, you're going to get hurt. And it's the same thing with love. It's like, when you know, you choose love, have no illusions, love hurts. And that's why I don't want to love people is because I don't want to get hurt. And, and not even just because they're going to be mean to me. Sometimes that's part of it. But also, it also hurts because I start caring about people. And what if that person dies? What if something bad happens? You know, and that hurts. So it's easier to just build my little my little castle where I don't have to worry about getting hurt because I won't have to experience loss, disappointment, heartache. Um, I won't have to suffer with anybody, um, anything like that. So, yeah, it's... Um, the gospel very much is very real world. Yeah, I, I like how this you guys are bringing this home on on it actually impacting the people around us. The problem with Gnostic Christianity, which is what Christianity is and always has been, except for perhaps a, a few segments here and there, but it's primarily Gnostic, is we have so separated heaven from earth and we have become so focused uh, on seeking heaven, seeking the the other side, and <clears throat> wanting be better better things, you know, whatever's on the other side is going to be better, you know, it's always better on the other side, right? You know, and, uh, yeah. Like so, so we're stuck in this 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 gr the grip of this kind of dualism, right? And no idea, with no idea, that one single verse, four words in scripture. The word became flesh. That's that's all bridged. There's not even two separate now. They're, they're, everything's in right relationship. Jesus puts everything in right relationship as he comes into our existence. So that's why Gnostic Christianity never made any sense. Only incarnational Christianity, and that's where the Spirit sent by the Father, through the Son, bears the character of the Son right into us. 
And we then manifest that spirit by learning to talk together, to help each other, to nurture each other, to encourage each other in our faith with not a single law. The, the only law that Paul says is the law of love. And love brings freedom, gives complete freedom to the other, to, to, you know, it's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was thinking too how we're talking about that how Gnosticism has so invaded Christianity and, and polluted this. Um, just this week, I was in a discussion with somebody how um, they were talking about Jesus dying on the cross. And we were, we were going about that quote um, as Michael, as you pointed out in Jesus-driven life, how um, when Jesus was on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was quoting the psalm. And this person was debating with me um, saying that, oh, no, that is when, you know, that is when God turned his face away. Uh, or, or no, excuse me. They didn't say God turned his face away. They said that is when Jesus was so consumed with our sin that the man part of him couldn't see God anymore you know but but basically like the god part of him was still intact and i was like okay you do realize that's completely gnostic because you just said it wasn't all of him suffering it it was it was the man part but the god part of him's out there being just fine and and, and the reason i bring that up is we're talking about this gospel message a huge part of the gospel is knowing that i have a a, a god who stands in solidarity with me in my suffering if if God escapes through his little God part of him steps out of the picture when the man part of him is suffering, how is he in me with me in my suffering? Because I I can't do that. I can't let part of me step out of the suffering. So anyway, I just I thought it just shows how Gnosticism is so infused in modern Christianity that we don't even realize how much um, of the things that we do and say and believe are just loaded with with narcissism of this whole view of escapism, God not really being human with us in our sufferings and and so it's like how can we then be the gospel because if we don't even have a God who's fully incarnate with us, then how can we be fully incarnate with our neighbors? Bada bada bing. Well, I, th- I think it, it comes down to we want to understand everything. And when we begin to approach God, when we begin to approach um, the gospel, really, when we begin to approach love, there is little, if any, understanding at all. You know, it's almost, and I know I'm taking it out of context, but I'm going to do it anyhow. As high <laughs> as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above yours. And and what we're talking about here, that just transcends human understanding. It, it it's that's not the way we operate. And and to tell me that God operates on on, on a level of love that doesn't even make sense to us in the beginning and it's it's we you have to begin to all right i don't understand it but i'm still going to embrace that message and i'm going to i'm going to seek to walk in it i'm going to seek and it it's it's as we begin to embrace the non-sacrificial aspects of love 
as we make ourselves vulnerable, like you said, Lauren, to to be hurt and yet to continue to love anyhow, we begin to gain understanding. Oh, I see how that works. Okay. And we kind of take the next step. But if if we're not willing to step out, you know, on the water, so to speak, it's like step out when you don't understand, when it doesn't make sense to you why you would do this. Why Why would you, uh, I'm, I'm going to use a really terrible analogy, but why would you put the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit back together as one? Why not keep them separate, you know, the three persons of the Godhead. They're all persons, and somehow, oh yes, in the Spirit, somehow they're one, but but they're really three distinct persons, and we've got to keep them separate, you know. Uh, You know, and it's like, why? You know, why is that so necessary among the vast majority of Christianity to keep them separate? Why... Why do we have a fully God, fully man, uh, Jesus, who is somehow separate? Well, he did this as God, but he did this as man. You know, it's like understanding of, for instance, understanding of John 17. It takes faith to understand that when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he means that. When he says, I want you to be one with us, he means one. Not somehow, you know, metaphysically or, you know, somehow in this, you know, spiritual sense, you know. But I and the Father will come into you and make our abode in you. And so we're not, we're not mustering up the ability to love because God and Jesus way up in heaven, wherever heaven is, the third heaven or the seventh heaven or the, you know. Imagine there's no heaven. <laughs> <laughs> but but God and Jesus and spirit living in me is loving through me. And, and that, I don't understand that. But I somehow have to accept it, and in accepting it, I begin to walk in it, and in walking in it, I begin to understand it, but the understanding goes way past my brain. It's like, you know, I don't know all that, how it works, but I know that it does work that way. It's like, I don't start out by understanding it. I start out by accepting it. Well, that's precisely... The way of the Christian faith tradition, it's the Latin phrase, fides quaerens intellectum. Faith seeks understanding. It, it has its own internal logic and rationality, but faith seeks to understand that which in which it is trusted, hmm. and which is very different than understanding seeking faith, which mm-hmm. is how religion works. Mm-hmm. It makes sense right. to me. I believe it. We're all good to go. And the thing is, the gospel turns our thinking upside down. The gospel turns our thinking inside out. The gospel, in a sense, mocks our our, uh, intellectualism. It mocks our 
um, wokeness. It mocks our sophistication. It, it, it the the gospel it, it rightly understood um, is the biggest threat to Christianity there is. Because the, if when the gospel is revealed for what it is, which is what the work of the Spirit does, and thankfully it happens all over the world all the time. I mean, you know, you, people are more and more and more, I'm seeing more and more books that are dealing with the question of, of the so-called, so-called violent God of the Jewish scriptures. How do we handle, you know, the relationship? And we're seeing more and more of that work being done out there. And all that means is more and more people are now getting set up to when this good news really hits them. Do you do you really know that in the depth of your despair, you are blessed? Yeah. Because whatever you thought a God was isn't. And this is what a God experience feels like. This is why you have to go through this. People don't understand. It's in their greatest despair. It's in their worst horrid moment of life where the, the crushing weight of reality has been thrust onto one's shoulders and and it's in that moment when nothing works, nothing you believe works, there's no hope, it's empty, it's empty. And it's in that moment that the Father says, excellent, we got all the crap out. Now let me tell you something. Take the load off, Annie. Put it right here. You know, come sit next to me. We're going to start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why we, we need, we must, we must in our life at some point have a dark night of the soul. And it is an event. Mm-hmm. I tell you right now, and you mm-hmm. guys are shaking your heads because you've been through it. You have to have it. And Christians that have not been through that dark night of the soul and and let, and let and, and did not get embittered and then just disappear yeah. off the yeah. scene that open their hearts to the Father at that point are, are the ones that are going to be the future mentors, leaders, pastors, and teachers because they've been through it. Now, this upcoming, upcoming apocalyptic next decade, in that sense, is going to produce a most good harvest for the decades after. Now, so you're not saying, and, and I know you're not, you're not saying that the Lord himself manufactures that dark night of the soul so that he can teach you something, which... which gets spoken from a lot of pulpits across the country. No, God does not create suffering. Exactly. But, love, doesn't, love, love doesn't inflict suffering. But what I do hear you say is that he is in that suffering with us. He's in that suffering with us, and, and it's at the point. It's at the very point. God, we've all been there. It's like almost suicidal. It's at that very point where the, there's emptiness, there's nothingness. That if we're if we're if we just just at that point we we we've just uttered our last prayer, Father, I, I can't, I don't, God, dear God, help me. I whatever we say, bang, that's the point that revelation can occur and work can begin deep in the soul, and healing, and and moving forward. I was pastoring uh, in New York and 
doing a considerable amount of traveling, doing conferences and and whatever, uh, speaking in churches and things like that. And through a series of events, many of them I brought on myself through whatever, my human humanity, let's put it that way, I had a complete emotional and mental breakdown. And one one day, just, just for case in point, one day I went out to a ball field and I sat on home plate and it was early in the morning and the next thing I know the sun was setting. And I don't remember ever a thought going through my mind. I don't remember why, you know, why I was there. It's just, oh, I guess I should go home now. And that went on for about three years. And I was invited to a men's retreat that previously I had actually led them or spoke at them or whatever. And I was like, I do not want to go. I can't face those those men. It's like, you know, look at me. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the brothers prevailed on me. No, Jim, you need to come. You need to come. And so I went. And for the life of me, I do not know why, but for some reason, I was sitting on the front row. And we were singing an old song, I love you, Lord. I lift my voice to worship you and rejoice. Yeah, yeah. And I heard in the core of my being, I heard the Lord ask me, like Peter on the seashore, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Not three times and no response back. Just probably 20 or 30 times. And finally, I'm, I'm on the ground. I'm on my knees. I'm sobbing. I do love you, Lord. I do love you, Lord. And finally, I heard this. I love you too, son. And it was over. It was in that moment of revelation that the Lord loved me in what you're saying, my darkest hour, Mm -hmm. that it was the love that brought the healing. And I, I, I share that just to, you know, punctuate what you're saying, Michael, that um, did God bring that about? No, absolutely not. But God was there with me. Mm-hmm. He was on that baseball diamond with me. He yeah. was on the days that I couldn't get out of bed with me. Yeah. And he was on the day that he asked me, do you love me? Yeah. And he was yeah. there just to simply say, I love you too, and then he identified it, son. I love yes. you, son. You know? Yeah. And 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 that was all I needed. That was it. Yeah, I have a similar story in that. In in for me, it's um, how God meets us in suffering, and this was a foundation point in my life that completely altered everything. Uh, became really kind of the bedrock of my relationship with Christ. Um, Lily and I were in our early 20s. She was pregnant. She was pregnant with twins. And we, uh, to that point, I didn't even know this. I thought deep within me that because I'm a good Christian, I follow Jesus. I do what I'm supposed to do. I, you know, I'm, I 
try to love my neighbor. I, you know, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm following Jesus. I got Jesus in my heart. I, I would never say this out loud, but I thought that meant bad things don't happen to me. And uh, as ridiculous as it sounds, I would, see, that's what I'm saying. I would have never verbalized that. But we have these things in our heart that get manifest in these moments. And uh, in that moment, it was, we were both in our mid-20s. And uh, uh, so Lily goes into premature leave. She's only about, um, it was, I think it was about three or four months, about three months before the twins were due. And uh, she goes, uh, her water breaks. And so we rush to the hospital. Long story short, um, I had a son and a daughter. My son, they couldn't keep him in the womb. He was coming. So he was born and they took him and they said his lungs aren't developed yet. He's, you know, way too young. So they're working on him, trying to save his life. And I'm standing there next to him. Lily's in the hospital room and I'm just watching. And the nurse just sees me like devastated watching my son die right in front of me. And my, um, the, uh, the nurse finally just stops the doctor and says, let him see his son and hands me my son. And literally all I could say that could come out of me was go be with Jesus, go be with Jesus. And, you know, he literally died in my arms. So I give him back to, um, well, I think we we I took him down for Lily to say goodbye, and then I gave him back to the nurse, and I'm about to have a full down breakdown, and I'm looking for a place to cry, and I'm in this hospital, and I'm looking for an empty room. I'm just going down the hallway looking for an empty room because I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna lose it. I walk right in front of the elevator. The door opens, and a a good friend of mine, Bill Sofer, who's a, a, a big teddy bear of a man, big construction worker, you know, think of Dan Connor on Roseanne, you know, loves Jesus with all his heart, just an incre- does work in Mexico now, um, steps out of the elevator right in front of me at that exact moment. And I just grabbed him and just sobbed, you know, just, um, and in that moment, what I saw, by the way, um, the, the, the other child was able to stay in her. That's my daughter, Michaela. Um, she was born premature. Um, but, but here's the thing is that no Superman Jesus showed up for me. No Superman God came in. I, I thought that's what's supposed to happen. I thought I'm a Christian. You know, the miracle's supposed to come. Um, what did come in the midst of my suffering was Jesus, through Bill, stepped out right in front of me and took me in his arms and held me and let me cry like I never cried before. Mm-hmm. And see, to me... That's the message that pre- preaches at the gates of Auschwitz, is that Jesus is there in our suffering. We're not left abandoned by him, just like his father never left him on the cross. He never leaves us in our suffering. He's right there with us. Um, I don't, and this is one of those things, again, Jim, when you talk about understanding, this is one of those things I don't understand. My my son died. They were saying all these terrible things that could be wrong with my daughter. They're saying, you know, she's she's... They, they were able to keep her in the womb one more week, but she still came like she was one pound, seven ounces when she was born. And they were telling me all the things that are going to be wrong with her. And, and it was weird. Oh, by the way, when she was in still in Lily's womb, Lily has this dream where an angel comes to her and says, I was sent to watch over the child. And, and then Michaela is, is born and the doctor saying all these things that could be wrong with her. And it's just, it was weird. It was like going in right in one year and out the other. And, and you've all met her. Um, 
have you seen anything wrong with her other than, you know, that she's my kid? No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> like, right. Very beautiful. Very, very wonderful, sarcastic sense of humor. Exactly. She, yeah. 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 Ever, ever since I first met her when she was just a baby, just a, a beautiful young lady. Yeah. Yeah, and and absolutely. and that's the and so it's one of those things where it's like on one hand we didn't get the miracle, and on the other we did, and it's it, it you talk about it, I like how I've always liked it. Brendan Manning wrote a book called Ruthless Trust, I just love the title, <laughs> and so it's one of those things where it's like on one hand we didn't get the miracle, and on the other we did, and. It's it, it. You talk about. It, I like how I've always liked. It. Brendan Manning wrote a book called Ruthless Trust. I just love the title because <laughs> the title Ruthless Trust. It had a picture on the cover of a, a tree, like an oak tree, on the edge of a cliff, being bombarded by wind. And and I feel like that's because going through. You know, we were trying to wrestle with all that for. It, it was for years. The, the wrestling, it wasn't like okay, now I just have this new theology. I mean, years of wrestling of why. You know, why God, why, why did we lose our daughter, our son? Why, you know, and, 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 and what kind yet, of a God are you anyway? Exactly. And you know, what's so strange is the message we're sharing now, people who haven't suffered hate it, you know, or people who want the, the charismatic high life of the, um, you know, the, the, the health and wealth gospel and stuff. But if you've suffered what we're sharing is actually encouraging because it was when I was sitting in a church pew of, it was a few years after all this, that a man came in and he was sharing and he was talking about the life of Joseph. And he was talking about how Joseph had his dark night of the soul, you know, going into the well and being sold into slavery. And, and, uh, and, and he goes, this is the pattern. This is the way God works in our lives. Um, not pattern, that's the wrong term, but, but he's there in our suffering and that, and that he, he, he will work through our suffering and, and hearing that, cause I'd never been told about suffering. I'd never been taught that, that, um, suffering is something that God uses to transform us and, and conform us into his image. Jesus learned obedience through the things that he okay. suffered. Um, and here's the thing too. One, one of it, there's a mystery in suffering because I, I didn't, when I was going through that and other things that I've gone through, we've gone through, we've been through bankruptcy, we've been through foreclosure, we've been through all kinds of wonderful things. And, uh, y y when you go through those things, as you guys know all too well, there, there's, there's a lot of screaming that goes on. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't look what we think is Christian at all, you know, wonderful at all. And you just go through hell on earth and it seems like nothing's happening in you. It seems like, it seems like nothing is growing. Nothing is happening. Nothing's there. The weird thing is you kind you come out of that. And I found something interesting when I would talk to people, I would be talking to somebody and, 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 and I don't say this to pump me up. I just say this as a reality of what suffering does. People would be clinging to what I say. And I would step back and go, that's weird. Because something happens in suffering that brings kind of a, if you lack, if lack of a better word, a power into your life. 
an authority, if you will, that's not there before when you haven't really suffered. Um, in other words, when you haven't been to the gates of hell and back and you haven't walked aside your your fellow brothers and sisters in humanity and suffered like they have, there's just not much there. And that's why the health and wealth gospel, it falls on deaf ears. It's, you know, we want that, but it it's not reality. Um, what brings authority, and I'm not even talking about I would be talking about suffering. I'm just saying I'd be sharing something that God's doing in my life or something. But there was an authority there that wasn't there before. And and that's where I look at the life of Joseph, where if you notice it was his dark night of the soul that prepared him to be, now his was a literal authority, but I'm talking where when you see in Jesus, there was an authority when he spoke because he learned his father's ways through the things he suffered. Yes. Lauren, can I can I adjust can I adjust something just a little bit? You you said you said the the wealth and you know and prosperity and all that. The God is good all the time, which I believe He is good all the time. But you know what what people say, you know that kind of stuff. That message is great for building uh, mega churches. And raking in millions and millions of dollars into into the coffers. The message that those people who have found God in the middle of their suffering, their message may not build churches. As a matter of fact, it won't. But I can guarantee one-on-one it will build lives. Because it's with the comfort that we've been comforted that we comfort one another. And, and, and so as we go about loving others as Christ has loved us, how has he loved us? In our suffering, in our pain. And as we go about loving others that way, we go about it, not to build a mega church, we go about it to build an individual's life. We exactly. find the broken, we find the wounded, we find the hurting, and we go and we put our arm around them and say, "Let me walk here with you." You mentioned Brennan Manning, and and I love his story about when he had fallen off the wagon and he was in New Orleans, you know, in the gutter, puking his guts out. And his buddy came and just sat with him. Didn't come to preach. Didn't come to tell him, Brennan, you know better. Just came to sit with him. And I think that's I think that's our that's a part of our gospel is that we sit with the broken. Yeah. You know? And yeah. and and like your buddy who God just told him <laughs> You know, go down to the hospital, be there, <laughs> open the door yeah. right now, you know, not audibly, but I mean, it was there just to be there with you. And, and I, I think that's, you know, I think that's, I'm looking up at the clock and I'm saying, oh, our time's run out again. <laughs> it's time, <laughs> right. time, Lauren, for you to sign off. <laughs> All right. So we'll do. But, but I think we ought to pick this back right back up. And, and exactly. I think we All got right. a lot, another mile or two to go with this one. Well, everybody, that is all the time we have, but um, we're having such a good discussion. We're going to continue this one next week. So um, thanks for joining us, everybody. And uh, Jim, where can people get a hold of your, your book? 
Amazon.com. All righty. And Michael, where can people find your materials? Uh, Amazon.com under uh, Cures for Insomnia. <laughs> Cures for Insomnia. <laughs> Okay, I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) All right, everybody. Well, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you all next week.